The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, May 29th, 1851. I'm Sally Helm. The old stone church in Akron, Ohio, has a row of columns out front and a clock tower rising up above the roof, topped by a statue of an angel blowing a bugle. Today, hundreds of men and women climb the steps of the church and pack themselves into the sanctuary. It's the second day of a big convention on women's rights. Yesterday, the attendees read out some resolutions on the topic in the morning, debated them in the afternoon, and adjourned in the evening with a song about Ohio. This morning, they reconvene at 9 o'clock to continue their consideration of the rights, duties, and relations of women. The room is stifling hot. One prominent newspaper editor can't find anywhere to sit except the pulpit steps. It opens with the usual fare. A prayer, the reading of the minutes. And then partway through the morning, according to a contemporary newspaper account, a woman comes up to the platform and says to the president of the convention, may I say a few words? (coughs) Sojourner Truth is an activist for women's rights and an activist against slavery. She's formerly enslaved herself. And over the years, the words that Truth spoke in this speech will get repeated and distorted and changed until they ultimately stand in the way of seeing and understanding the woman herself. To trivialize her and sum her up as a slogan is a cheapening of her and a cheapening of the meanings of American history. Today, Sojourner Truth. How did this feminist and anti-slavery activist get turned into a symbol? And what parts of the person got lost in that process? Who was truth, really? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you want to know who Sojourner Truth was, there's no one place to go. There is no The Sojourner Truth archive. It's like looking a quilt of tiny little bits and pieces. That's Professor Nell Irvin Painter. She wrote the definitive biography of Sojourner Truth. And as she was pulling those pieces together in her research, she started to notice a split. On the one hand, there was the Sojourner Truth that people described in words. This fiery person who was uh, taunting men, scaring off enemies, and ripping open her blouse to show her breast. All of those accounts, though, were filtered through other people. Truth herself couldn't read or write. But, Painter said, 
Truth did find a way to control her own image through photographs. She composed them herself. She's sitting upright or standing with a cane. There might be flowers on the table. She might be wearing a bonnet. Sometimes she's holding a book or a photograph of her grandson or her knitting. Which I love because I'm a knitter. In these photos... She is not a defiant figure. She's a woman you should listen to and heed because she is your equal. So the conflict between the representations of Sojourner Truth, that's something I wanted to solve. Truth's story begins in the late 1790s. When she's born, she's known simply as Isabella. In the way of rural people and enslaved people, she did not have a last name. She belonged to people, so her name was Isabella. And she lived and was enslaved in upstate New York, in the Catskills. When she was born, slavery was a national institution. It wasn't just in the South. Isabella was enslaved by a Dutch family on a rural farm. Her first language was actually Dutch. She was the youngest of 10 or 12 children, but all but one of her siblings had been sold away before she was born. In a narrative of her life that she dictated and sold as a book, she said that her parents would spend hours sitting around a fire in the dark cellar where they slept, telling her details about, quote, those dear departed ones of whom they had been robbed. At the age of nine, Isabella too was sold away from her parents, and then sold again and again, finally to a family named the Dumonts. And she was there when the date of emancipation in New York State approached. The state had decided back in 1799 that any enslaved people born before that year would be free on July 4th, 1827. That included Isabella. But she made a different deal with John Dumont to grant her her freedom one year earlier. Soon before she was to be released, however, she injured her hand, and Dumont went back on his promise. Determined, nevertheless, to become free on her own terms, Isabella decided she would leave once she'd finished spinning a hundred pounds of wool. Which she did, and she felt that she was then free to leave. He did not agree with that. But Isabella had allies in the Catskills. One of them, a prominent member of Dumont's church, took her in as a free woman in 1826, a year before New York abolished slavery. So she effectively emancipated herself just before her legal emancipation. Within a year, she'd managed to also free one of her sons. She went to court and sued the people who'd illegally sold him out of the state after slavery had been outlawed. She won. And then? She, like many rural New Yorkers and New Jerseyans, uh, was drawn to the booming New York City. There, she gets caught up in a movement sweeping the country. The Second Great Awakening. Thousands of Americans are filled with religious fervor, including Isabella. In 1843, and this is a crucial year and a crucial moment, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit said to her that she should preach her truth because... People needed to, as people would say in the 20th century, get right with God because the second coming was imminent. 
And she was to be an itinerant preacher, that is to say, a sojourner. So she became, she named herself under the power of the Holy Spirit as Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth eventually leaves New York and goes north to Massachusetts. She settles for a time in a cooperative community called the Northampton Association. It was forward-thinking people, anti-slavery people, feminist people who believed in sort of cooperative production of silk. Silk! When Sojourner Truth arrived there in 1843, the 100 or so people in the community lived a simple life, bathing in the river and working 10 hours a day on silk production. Some believed in things like the water cure, immersing yourself in cold water to improve your health. I guess now we'd call it wellness. Northampton was also a hub of intellectual and political exchange. It was sometimes considered a kind of sort of summer camp in a way for abolitionists. So Frederick Douglass, for instance, spent time there, you know, kind of a respite from the toils of being on the lecture circuit. Importantly, at this time, the anti-slavery movement and the feminist movement were really intertwined. It's not two movements. It's one movement. They were for equal rights, rights for everybody. And it's in this setting that Truth becomes more involved in anti-slavery feminism. She began making the transition from a person focused on religion into forward-thinking social activism. While Truth is living in Northampton, she takes a step onto the public stage. She has another woman in the community write down her story, which is published as The Narrative of Sojourner Truth. And then she sets out on the lecture circuit to promote the book. She draws on her experience as a preacher. She was able to use the symbols and the people and the stories of the Bible to make rhetorical sense and rhetorical strength. So she was a really convincing speaker. People were riveted when she spoke. Truth travels through Massachusetts, then Western New York, and then... One of the first places she starts speaking is Salem, Ohio, because it was known as an anti-slavery place. I mean, anti-slavery and women's rights. And it's through those Ohio connections that Truth ends up attending the Women's Rights Convention at the Old Stone Church in Akron in 1851. She's partly there to sell books, but she ends up also giving a speech— In a way, it's just one speech among many. She was, remember, already on the lecture circuit. But this speech happens before a relatively large audience. Truth speaks powerfully about women's rights and human rights. She said that she had worked very hard, that she deserved rights as all women deserved rights and all people deserved rights. And men should not feel that anything was being taken away from them by women getting their rights as uh, citizens and as human beings. According to an account of the speech published about a month later in a newspaper, Truth describes the work she'd done as an enslaved woman. She says, I have plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed. And can any man do more than that? And through her presence, she reminds a large audience 
that women's rights includes the rights of women who are working women and women who have been enslaved. This is especially notable because many of the women at the convention are well-educated, white, and upper class. But truth... She was not an educated woman. She was not a wealthy woman. She was not a, a woman of the elite. But she was claiming human rights for women like herself as for all women. The version of the speech that we're drawing from here comes from that newspaper account, which was by a man named Marius Robinson. He actually knew truth. She'd stayed at his house during her time in Ohio. He wrote down what she said as she was speaking, as he wrote down what other speakers were saying as they were speaking, and he published it right away. So this is a source that historians would consider very reliable. But in the years to come, there will be a lot written about truth and about this speech. Not all of it is so reliable. Remember, Truth herself couldn't read or write. But in the years after 1851, other women, anti-slavery feminist women, kept on writing about her, publishing their own stories in popular news magazines. And through the 1850s and 60s, the national climate is changing. In 1851, at the time of the convention, anti-slavery and women's rights are very much niche passions. This was a group of people who were activists, who were what we would call on the left. But by the 1860s, the country is in the middle of the Civil War. Questions of slavery and the rights of Black Americans are at the front of the national conversation. So it's not quite a generation, but it's a generational shift. And importantly, the media environment has shifted too due in large part to the publication of a runaway bestseller, Uncle Tom's Cabin. The novel was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And her version of enslaved Black people was the version of enslaved Black people by the 1860s. Stowe was trying to humanize enslaved Black people for a white audience to promote her anti-slavery agenda. But she still portrayed them as other simple and exotic, yet deserving of freedom. And that's the way she painted Sojourner Truth when she decided to write an article about her in 1863. The article was riddled with errors. Like, for one thing, it said that Truth was dead. She was not dead, very much not dead. Stowe also quotes Truth in dialect, though contemporary newspaper accounts of Truth's speeches were written in standard English. By the 1860s, it was very common to quote Black figures in dialect as a way of othering, as a way of uh, making them exotic. Stowe was clearly going for that effect in her article about truth. She's almost uh, described as a palm tree coming out of the desert. Now, um, (laughs) the Hudson Valley is hardly the desert. It's the Catskills. It's cold and it's mountainous. But since Harriet Beecher Stowe was writing about a Black figure, we had to have sort of southern stuff. Stowe's depiction tended towards the theatrical and the dramatic, and was not necessarily accurate. One person who notices that is a woman named Frances Dana Gage. She had been at the 1851 convention in Akron, 
In fact, she was serving as its president. And when she sees all the errors in Stowe's story, she decides to write an article, too, presenting her own, more accurate version of truth. It's, on the one hand, a way of saying, I have better anti-slavery, better feminist bona fides than Harriet Beecher Stowe. But also, it was truly to say, look, this is somebody you really ought to know about. But Gage's story was also written in Stowe's theatrical mode. And like hers, it perpetuated stereotypes. Gage also quotes truth in dialect. And she dramatizes the convention scene, placing truth in a room full of hostile anti-Black men and meek white women, too scared to speak up. And in Gage's telling, Sojourner Truth sort of rises up as a force of nature and saves the white women. Even though that's not how it happened. It is not a meeting hostile to anti-slavery people. It is not a meaning full of cowed women. She makes a very eloquent presentation to people who were happy to hear from her about the importance of women's rights. The way Gage reports on that presentation will be the most lasting impact of her account. She quotes Sojourner Truth as saying four times, and aren't I a woman? meaning I also need women's rights. Now, Sojourner Truth did believe that she was a woman and she also deserved women's rights, but she did not have that refrain in what she said in 1851. It was actually added to the speech by a white woman, Frances Dana Gage, 12 years after the fact. The way people remember this speech undergoes one more important change in the coming decades. More on that later. But the addition of this four-word refrain is by far the most lasting impact of Gage's embellished account. There isn't a great record of Truth's reaction to this rewriting of her words. But someone did ask her once what she thought about people quoting her in dialect. And she didn't like it. She said that people were making her sound dumb. Truth was being tokenized. And by the time the Civil War was ending, others in the anti-slavery feminist movement were trying to use her as a symbol of unity because their movement was beginning to splinter. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 1865, the Civil War ends, cementing the abolition of slavery in the United States. This was, of course, a huge victory for anti-slavery feminist activists, but it is also what drove a wedge between them. As long as the enemy was slavery, everyone was fighting on the same side. But in the wake of the Civil War, a new issue emerges. Black male suffrage, voting rights. The reality in Congress was that universal suffrage was not possible politically. So adding women's rights to Black men's rights to vote was politically suicidal. Anti-slavery feminist activists had been pushing for universal suffrage. But when it becomes clear that's not going to happen— the coalition starts to fall apart. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the Greek champions, did a very ugly turn into bigotry, speaking ill of men of color, of black men, of working class men. The point was for them that there should not be the enfranchisement of black men unless there was the enfranchisement of women And by women, they meant white women. Meanwhile, abolitionists, including Black activists like Frederick Douglass, are arguing that if Black men don't get the right to vote, there can be no lasting progress after the war. And Black women, like Sojourner Truth, are caught in the middle. At an 1867 women's rights convention, Truth makes a speech saying that in order for slavery to be fully destroyed, Black men need the right to vote. And Black women do too. She spoke up for Black women to have the vote, for poor women to have the vote. But she didn't want to hold Black men's vote hostage to that. She also avoids directly calling out the white women for their racism. You see Sojourner Truth trying not to have to choose, trying not to have to alienate what are becoming two sides of the movement that she had been a part of now for decades. It's important to note, Sojourner Truth is far from the only Black woman involved in this activism at the time. In fact, the previous year at a convention in 1866, a Black activist named Frances Ellen Watkins Harper had given a very powerful speech— You white women speak of rights, she said. I speak of wrongs. Harper and Truth were very different figures. Harper had been born free in Baltimore. Harper was a writer. She was a poet. She was well-educated. And she dressed and spoke like her white women peers. And in general, she's very willing to hold those white women peers to account. She was not as... um, gentle with them, as Truth was. Truth, remember, had been a preacher, and she was not ready to condemn white women. 
whereas Harper was. And so Harper is the one who got written out of the 19th century women's history. This happens quite literally in a book that Stanton and Anthony later write called History of Woman Suffrage, in which Harper's speeches are not printed in full. Stanton and Anthony are writing their version of history for a movement that has now well and truly splintered. In 1868, the 14th Amendment, which theoretically gives all male citizens the right to vote, is ratified. Inserting the word male for the first time in the U.S. Constitution, that is a moment of crisis. Things reach a boiling point the next year, while the 15th Amendment is being debated. It would explicitly guarantee black male suffrage, since the 14th Amendment had left loopholes that allowed for disenfranchisement. This moment has been called the Great Schism in the Anti-Slavery Feminist Movement. By the end of 1869, there were two prominent women's suffrage organizations. There was Stanton and Anthony's National Women's Suffrage Association, which dismissed Black male suffrage and issues of Reconstruction as dead questions of the past. And then there was the American Women's Suffrage Association, which supported Black male suffrage and which included Sojourner Truth. So she finally ended up very clearly on the side of Black male suffrage. That stance of truths also gets elided in Stanton and Anthony's take on things in A History of Women's Suffrage. In general, the book leaves out or minimizes the roles of many Black women and Black-led organizations that contributed to the cause. If you wanted to find a Black woman, the only woman you would find there is Sojourner Truth. So it's the impoverishment of women's history in the early 20th century that tempted many to stop with Sojourner Truth and the gauge version of Sojourner Truth. The Aren't I a Woman version. That's the version that makes it into the book. And in the 20th century, that version changes again. Sojourner Truth's memory had been molded throughout history to fit different political needs. And for historians and activists and regular people in the modern era, looking back at the 1800s, one need was for a Black woman among the women because feminism in the 20th century was considered a white woman's thing. And for a woman among the Black people because Black civil rights was often considered a men's thing. So Sojourner Truth becomes the figure who desegregates two movements. But for 20th century people revisiting the refrain Gage made up, aren't I a woman? That came to sound not Southern enough by the reasoning. If Sojourner Truth had been a slave, then she must have been a Southerner. And everybody knows that Southerners don't say aren't, Southerners say ain't. And so we get ain't in the 20th century. Even though Sojourner Truth was not a Southerner, she was a proud New Yorker. But this slogan, Ain't I a Woman, gets repeated as if it were fact. It was reported on our own History Channel website until after researching this episode, we changed it. And we're not alone in repeating the slogan. It's been written down in history books, not to mention on many a mug and t-shirt and little ceramic pin. 
We still want simple answers, slogans, mythical figures. That's very tempting. Francis Dana Gage's slogan just sounds so right in the way that stereotypes just sound so right. But Professor Painter is adamant about not reducing truth to a slogan. First of all, because it's somebody else's slogan. But second of all, because it trivializes a figure who needs to be seen both as an extraordinary figure, but as the embodiment of many of the strands and themes of 19th century American history. So how should she be remembered instead? I would like people to remember Sojourner Truth as a woman who changed over time, for one thing, upstate New Yorker who emancipated herself, who was a powerful speaker, who was a, a deeply intelligent woman, who, even though she did not read and write, was an adept in using the tropes and the images of American religion to the ends of anti-slavery and women's rights. Not a person who can be summed up in just four words. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Very special thanks today to Martha Jones, whose book Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, has more great info on Sojourner Truth, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, and many other important Black women you should know. Thanks also to Patricia Turner. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Bill Moss, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.